When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. It's a particularly eclectic mix of movies for this Valentine's weekend. We've got the romantic drama The Photograph, starring Lakeith Stansfield and Issa Rae, but also the comedic drama Downhill, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell. For the kids, it's Sonic the Hedgehog with Jim Carrey and James Marsden, and the popular Ardman Studios of Wallace and Gromit fame have a new Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. Unfortunately, the horror remake of the TV show Fantasy Island wasn't screened for critics, but we can pretend what it's like. It's all coming your way on Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC. We'll get started with our reviews right after the news. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us, along with our critics this week, Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor, and Amy Nicholson, film writer for The Guardian and host of the podcast Unspooled and the podcast miniseries Zoom. We begin this week with Sonic the Hedgehog, featuring an animated lead character, the rest are live action. The film stars the voice of Ben Schwartz as Sonic, along with James Marsden and Jim Carrey. The film directed by Jeff Fowler, Patrick Casey, and Josh Miller with the screenwriters. Peter, let's start with you on Sonic the Hedgehog. Well, you know, I was expecting to kind of doze off, shall we say, to this movie or not go for it. But it, it's kind of uh, affectionate and charming and genial. And, uh, you know, I guess if I was nine years old, uh, I might appreciate it even more. But, um, it, you know, it, it, it has its uh, felicities. It's it's rather witty. Uh, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog is, is exiled for his own uh, uh, safety to uh, Earth, where uh, is a small Montana town where he's very lonely. And uh, he observes uh, the goings-on, the inhabitants, uh, always sort of, you know, uh, uh, surreptitiously, uh, he's particularly fond of the uh, the town cop played by James Martin, Martin and um, ultimately they bond and uh, then uh, evil uh, arrives in the uh, person of uh, Dr. Robotnik played by Jim Carrey uh, who wants to um, 
corral uh, a Sonic for uh, research, quote-unquote, purposes, a very nefarious guy. And it's, I have to say, I mean, it, it's really great to see Jim Carrey doing what he does best. I yeah. mean, I know he's done serious stuff, and he's not bad at that either, but... But, you know, he really is in sort of full Jim Carrey mode here with, you know, with this uh, mustache and, you know, all of those you know rubbery grimaces. And, you know, and the special effects are OK. They're far from great. Uh, but I think in a film like this, that's not necessarily what you're going for. You know, the, the CGI, it's, it's more the, uh, shall I say, the humanish, humanoid content. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Amy? Yeah, I mean, the plot here is incredibly silly. It's a road trip movie. We have to get the bag of Sonic's golden coins. But I'm with Peter. Jim Carrey is terrific. I was grumbling through this entire movie because Sonic himself, the hedgehog himself, is incredibly annoying. He does a lot of internal monologues. I don't really care about him or his bucket list of things he wants to accomplish on Earth before he goes away. He's the worst. He's in incredibly caffeinated and annoying. But then Jim Carrey shows up. And his Who's very caffeinated and annoying. But in the best way. Yeah. It's such a it's a physical performance. He's dancing. He goes all in. It's very it's exacting in his emotions. I was just thrilled to be reminded of everything Jim Carrey can do when he lets himself rip. And also I really enjoy James Marsden. He's been one of our low-key... Um, I think uh, Tim Grierson wrote a piece this week about how he's our best beta male <laughs> in film because he always plays the guy that the girl dumps, usually. He's never the star. He's the other guy who's a little too handsome. And hes it's lovely to have him get a center role here in this. I mean, for the most part, I could take or leave anything about the actual movie, but there is a moment where he, where Sonic stops time, or really it's that he moves so fast it appears though time has stopped, in a biker bar. And the film does some really creative stuff with the mayhem he can cause in a biker bar when nobody else knows how fast he's running around and disrupting Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of Matrix uh, aspect to that with the, fr the frozen time thing. But my favorite thing is when um, Sonic is playing ping pong with himself. You know, he's so fast yeah, that yeah. he can go back and forth. Uh, but that's kind Charles, of like yeah. over the hedge when the Jim Carroll squirrel drinks the Red Bull and outruns the laser, isn't it? Um, but there was also a huge kerfuffle over this film when they first unveiled the model for Sonic. It didn't look like the character from the games. And there was this incredible online protest and they had to go back and redesign and reanimate the character. Wow. So these are all these people who played that back in the 90s. Yeah, very were, much. Yeah. And so that added <laughs> millions of dollars to the budget. <laughs> you ruined my high school, my childhood. Yeah, childhood. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't get any of that. These guys in, in their 20s was... complaining about it. He doesn't look like Sonic. <laughs> oh, in their 30s and 40s. All right. Okay. <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog is rated PG. It's in wide release. Uh, the photograph romantic drama for this Valentine's weekend from writer-director Stella McGee. It stars Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield. Rae stars as the daughter of a famed photographer who, when her mother dies, finds herself digging into her mother's early life. It ignites an unexpected and powerful romance with the rising star journalist Stanfield in the process. Don't you want more than this? What do you mean? More than what we have. No, I want you. I want to be married to you. I'm not ready to get married. What more do you want? I want people to know who I am. Admire my photographs. I love you, but my greatest accomplishment each day cannot be cooking your dinner. 
As from the photograph, the romantic drama out this week, Stella McGee again, the writer-director. Uh, Amy, what do you think? Yeah, this is a very classic, handsome-style romance that I liked a lot with a few big reservations. I mean, the set appears you have these two timelines. In the present day, you have Lakeith Stanfield, one of my favorite actors, and it is wonderful to get to him to see. It's wonderful to get to see him play just a big leading man part. He doesn't get to do most of those. He's usually the weirdo supporting character in the background. So having him front and funny. center playing a human <laughs> is fantastic. Um, and he's romancing Issa Rae, who is um, a museum curator. And then in the back, you jump to the 80s, where it's her mother deciding whether or not to leave the Deep South and her boyfriend there and start this life in New York and become what seems to be, from the pieces we gather from Issa Rae's character, kind of a bad mom, really cold. And this film is, you know... It's as handsome as anything can get. Everybody's got the best coat. I was just stop, like stopping and saying, that coat's great, that coat's great. The soundtrack is lovely jazz. It's it. The problem with it, as much as I really want to love this film, is that it's trying to be very modern and relatable, where the main problem for the, the new couple is that they're both workaholics and they have a hard time saying what they mean and they're a little bit emotionally distant, which I think people can connect to, but it doesn't make the best drama on screen because it's a lot of people just staring at each other and then walking away or widening their eyes and not saying what they feel. And so it, the drama isn't quite there, but it was pleasurable to sink into. The photograph, Peter. Yeah, I, I agree with Amy. I think it it's... The problem is that you have these two characters who, uh, I mean, there's a legitimate issue here, which is that they both have, uh, you know, jobs that, that really occupy them, that are good, powerful jobs. And, and, and you know, so, so what do they do about it if one has to move somewhere else, you know? Uh, it's a classic dilemma, but it's not really resolved in a way that I thought was at all satisfying. Uh, and um, it, it also, it's it, it's a little too soft and soupy. You know, it's it's sort of trying to be like you know this year's the Notebook. Um, and, oh, even and, the title, the photograph comes brings to mind. Yeah, Nicholas yeah, Sparks. Even, and this yeah. Nicholas yeah. Sparks kind of. I mean, there was a much better day, movie. Past day, someone yeah. has cancer in the past. Yeah, I mean, it, I thought the Deep South scenes were, were were also more authentic and felt real. You know. They were more powerful and, and evocative than the, the present-day scenes, um, but there weren't enough of them. And, uh, and, and Lakeith Stanfield, I mean, he's, he's, he's a wonderful actor. I do feel in this movie that he was sort of trying to lift himself into, you know, the kind of romantic leading man realm. And it, it, it didn't quite work for me because I kept thinking of the character that you mentioned that he's always playing who's so, so funny and oddball and weird and, and, and better. You know, I mean, there's no reason why he couldn't have worked more of that into this character. I don't see why if you're playing a conventional romantic hero, you have to, you know, sort of... Leave all the oddities leave out. Leave all the oddities yeah. out. Yeah. If anything, you should Makes bring the up character the, the four. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they shouldn't have covered up all his tattoos. <laughs> well... <laughs> the photograph starring Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield, Stella Meggie is the writer-director rated PG-13 in wide release. Opened last week when we were bringing you our Academy Awards preview film week, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, starring uh, Margot Robbie and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Amy? Yeah, this movie is incredible anarchy. I had so much fun in the theater for this. The setup here is this is Margot Robbie, as we met her um, with the Suicide Squad type of Joker thing where she was dating, um, oh no, what's his name? Skinny Joker Man with the green hair and nobody likes that Joker. Um, not the Joaquin Phoenix. But so Margot Robbie is has been dumped by him at the very beginning of Birds of Prey. So Harley Quinn, her 
brilliant evil sidekick is now adrift for the first time in her life without anybody to occupy that space. You know, she's used to being, as she says, like a Harlequin is somebody who dances for other people's amusement. And so this is a breakup movie in the first half where she drinks too much. She's an absolute mess. And then she slowly starts to try to pull herself, you know, together by forming some friendships over a really fast 48 hour kind of mayhem story. And I have to say, Margot Robbie can do everything. She's amazing in this movie. It's really refreshing to see a superhero movie where the leading person has an actual personality and they wear their emotions on the surface and they're not just like, I'm glum and traumatized and I'm going to stomp around and be really sad. But have a huge responsibility. I have a huge responsibility (laughs) and I just have to remind myself of it every day. I mean, she is pure chaos and she plays her kind of like a like an old Looney Tune cartoon or maybe something that Max Fleischer would have done. She's always making impulsive bad decisions. She's getting herself into trouble all the time. And the the film makes the point over and over again that everyone in Gotham hates her, which they do. And you understand why they hate her as much as you're adoring watching this character. So she herself is fantastic. The action choreography, the action choreography is pretty good. There's a lot of long shots, really interesting slow fights. There's a lot of leg breaking I wouldn't say this movie is bloody, but I would say it's very, very violent. If I have a quibble, it has probably the worst needle drops I've heard of any movie in the recent really? history. It's all wow. like gothic versions of Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Every time a song <laughs> kicked in, I wanted to just put headphones on and watch something. What Put my own music on top of it, pull a Wizard of Oz kind of thing with it. <laughs> but it's just terrific fun. I think people will like this a lot. And there is... Um, there is kind of a tiny role for uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who shows up as almost the Batman type of figure. She plays a woman who wants to call herself Huntress, but everybody calls her the crossbow killer. And she is that glum, all in black vision. And when she shows up, she just makes the rest of the movie look so fun by comparison. You realize how how loony and boring that stereotype has gotten. Margot Robbie stars in Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. It's rated R in wide release. Sean the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, the latest from Ardman Studios, who brought us Wallace and Gromit in the series of Sean the Sheep for television and film. Uh, the movie is directed by Will Beecher and Richard Phelan. Charles? Well, as Wallace and Gromit is an appropriate lead-in because Sean began as a mischievous little character in Nick Park's A Close Shave. I love that, Bill. Oh, it's it's wonderful. And then they spun this character, rather mischievous little sheep, off into a hugely popular series for children. Uh, about two years ago, there was the first feature, which for some reason few people went to as much fun as it was. And this is wonderfully silly in that... British comic way that doesn't make a big thing out of being silly, but just is. And it is so much fun. Uh, There's a subplot with an alien, um, a child alien who somehow got in the spaceship to Earth that the sheep find and have to help get back to her parents. But at the same time, the rather dim-witted farmer who owns um, uh, the farm that Sean and his friends live on decides to set up a space Farmageddon amusement park. And, of course, the two collide um, with just such wonderfully funny, silly results. It's entirely in mime. The characters will gurgle and bleep a little bit. (laughs) But no words. It's just pure animation. There are spoofs of everything from uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey to Doctor Who that are just tucked in here and there. And it's a hoot. It, it, it's just so much fun. And it deserves um, 
you know, more attention as did the first movie, just for reminding us we don't have to be talked to death by animated characters. Just let them be animated and you'll have a great time. And I just love the movie. Well, the good thing, Charles, it's going to be streaming on Netflix. Right. Uh, it's there right now for people to see Sean the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. And if you want to see it on the big screen, Lemley's Glendale is showing it as well. So you have your choice if you're a Netflix subscriber or to see it in Glendale at the Lemley's there. Will Beecher and Richard Phelan are the directors. John Brown wrote the screenplay. And it's rated G. When's the last time we saw a G-rated film? That's, that wasn't icky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sean the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, and I'm deeply disappointed that the horror film Fantasy Island was not screened for critics. The idea of taking the Fantasy Island treacly television series of the 70s and turning it into a horror film is just such a great idea. Uh, uh, if only Ricardo Montalban could have uh, starred in it. Uh, and uh, Hervé Velasquez. Uh, yes. Although I have to say... Yeah. I saw a tweet on the way over here that finally had seen it, and they called it Worst World. So (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. Fantasy Island is rated PG-13, also in wide release. Many more movies to come. listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Hope you have a wonderful weekend, uh, whether it's Valentine's Day uh, or President's Day on Monday to get a chance to uh, observe. We have many films to talk about with our critics Amy Nicholson, Peter Rayner, and Charles Solomon. Next up, Ordinary Love, uh, another romantic drama for this Valentine's weekend. Liam Neeson, Leslie Manville star. The film is directed by Lisa Barros de Sa and Glenn Lyburn, Owen McCafferty, the screenwriter. Amy, what do you think of Ordinary Love? Yeah, this is a very low-key, quiet, lovely very sad at times dramedy that I, you know, I admire a lot. Well, you have here two of our great, great actors. You have Liam Neeson and you have Leslie Manville playing this long-term married couple with great chemistry. When they banter, you really believe them. They seem to have a lot of fun together, even as they have a life that's really hermetic. There's an early scene where they're eating soup together like every other night and he notices she's added one new ingredient to it because nothing really changes until she gets diagnosed with breast cancer. And here's where the casting gets kind of interesting, because you have Liam Neeson, who's had this second career resurgent as the fixer. You know, if, you're, if your daughter's stolen, he's got it. You know, he'll shoot his way to solving he's every problem. He's almost a superhero. He is. <laughs> and this is a movie about what do you do when you have a man like that who does vibrate with this fix-it energy face a problem that he can't solve, you know, and that he can't do anything about. And that at some point on this road... She needs to walk some of this on her own and she needs to have some space to deal and grieve in a way that doesn't involve him in their relationship. I found this movie to be, you know, a little claustrophobic. It has a very limited color palette. It's a little stifling at times. But for their chemistry alone, if people are fans of them, I can see them really enjoying seeing this She's film. so great. Fandom Thread. What a oh performance. Oscar-nominated, of course. Yeah, topsy-turvy. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah she's, she is, she's just dynamite on screen. Peter, what do you think yeah. of Ordinary Love? Well, I, I see the drama part. I don't see the ad part of the dramedy uh, in this film. I think it's, you know, it it's a worthy movie. Uh, the the relationship that they have as it grows over time with with this, you know, horrible diagnosis is 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 real and compelling. 
there was quite a bit of, uh, you know, stuff with her, you know, in hospitals being tested, waiting for results and so forth. That That's, you know, very sharply observed and, and, and uh, you know, low-key in, 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 in a non-exploitive way. Um, but I think there isn't enough really to do with the characters. It's almost like they're stand-ins for a dilemma or a predicament. And you don't get, particularly with, with the Liam Neeson character, I don't even think we know what he does for a living, right? He's just yeah, sort of the husband. Yeah, they past all choices in life besides hanging out with each other. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't really know much about what they do or who they are. And, you know, so there's a kind of generic aspect to it that, that I found, you know, off-putting in a film that, that touches so many, you know, nerves. Uh, but it is, uh, you know... Wonderful to see these two actors, uh, even in what I think is a sort of subpar uh, written role, especially in, uh, for him. Ordinary Love, Liam Neeson, Leslie Manville star, Lisa Barrow-Saw, and Glenn Lyburn, the directors. It's rated R. It's at the Landmark in West L.A. Downhill pairs Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell in a comedic drama directed by Nat Faxon and Jim Rash. They also wrote the screenplay with Jesse Armstrong. Peter? Yeah, this is a, I guess you'd call it a remake of uh, Force Majeure, which was the terrific uh, Ruben Ostlin film uh, from, I guess, five years ago. It, um, But it sort of validates uh, a saying that I have, you know, don't don't remake the good movies, remake the bad movies. That, that were had, a great concept. That, had, that yeah. had a great concept. You know, this was a terrific movie. When it was first made, and I suppose all things being equal, if if uh, Dreyfus and and Farrell had really stepped up and been in a movie that had more than what this film has, it might have justified its existence. But both of these performers, who can be so funny uh, and so sharp, uh, I think are dragged down by by the concept in this movie, which which takes over rather quickly. I didn't see. I mean, I know it's supposed to be comedic in some ways. But again, I didn't see much of the comedy in this film, and the 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 uh, the acrimony that 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 sets in early on when he you know runs away from his family during an avalanche, and and then is you know the recriminations that come from that, being a coward, you know he has two sons and they they don't look up to him, and all of this I think uh, is 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 a psychological uh, powerhouse that that never explodes in this film. It's just a lot of you know, sneering and angry looks and, and flat dialogue and, and rather flat performances. What do you yeah, think, Amy? To be honest, I feel a little bit for this film because I'm not sure that a lot of people have seen Force Majeure, you know, and that this this is a big, wide release. I think they're hoping it'll be seen in a lot of places where Force Majeure might not have, have even played. And so I, I, feel, I feel like if Force Majeure had never existed, we'd really enjoy this movie for what it is. You know, it's kind of a candy-dipped American-ish uh, sequel about this family in the Alps who, as Peter was alluding to, you know, when the father runs away during an avalanche and leaves the family to be alone, even though they're fine, even though nothing really happens, like the emotional trauma that everybody in the family feels, the kind of psychic reverberations that rattle through the rest of their vacation. I think actually Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus handle pretty well. You know, they do it bigger, they do it louder. It's definitely more on the surface. But I, I would, I'm so hesitant to try to tell people who haven't seen Force Majeure not to see this one, because I think if you had it, you'd really love it. And I feel bad for us critics who have seen Force Majeure that you can't help but compare it. Of course, people time. can see it. I'm sure it's available through streaming services or um, yes. video on demand. So, you know, in That's the old true. days, if, if, if Hollywood remade a film like this, they would uh, prohibit 
the showing of the original movie, they would somehow, you know, quarantine. So it no so comparison. You, could, you couldn't get it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that happened an awful lot. I remember when they remade Stagecoach with Bing Crosby. And apparently it was it was hard to get to see the John Ford movie. Wow, you know, I I hadn't heard that. the The co writers, by the way, Fax and Arash, they did the Way Way Back, which I liked yeah, very yeah. much, and the Descendants, which I I liked very much. But yeah. this sounds thematically like very different territory from those films. I mean, I do feel like if you're going to do a big American version of Force Majeure, you couldn't do it much better than this does. I really I thought this movie is pretty fine. Downhill, starring Julia Louis. Dreyfus and Will Ferrell. The movie's rated R. It's in wide release. Bean Pole uh, is a film from Russia, a drama. We don't get many comedies from Russia, do we? <laughs> Just having to think of the thinking out loud. A lot, uh, lot of laughs in Dostoevsky. <laughs> Peter, what'd you think of Bean Pole? It's a laugh riot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this boy, this movie gets dark real fast. Uh, uh, Bean Paul is the nickname for uh, a nurse in, um, you know, right after, uh, you know, the Battle of Leningrad, the post-war uh, rubble and destruction in, 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 in that city. And she's she's a Bean Paul because she's, you know, looks like a Bean Paul. She's tall and thin and and uh, uh, she has a young little boy, uh, professedly her son. Um, and uh, tragedy sets in very early in this movie. It's the most powerful scene in the film. Um, she has a friend who was an anti-aircraft uh, uh, gunner uh, in the war that they, they, they were friends together during the fighting, and, and the two of them have a kind of bond, which is explained as the film goes on, um, and it, it, it's, it's very good when it's dealing with the... Uh, the strife uh, that you of, of of post-war you know agonies with these two women in the very well recreated uh, uh, post-war Leningrad. I mean, it's 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 really uh, you know first rate in that respect, and and it's also rare to see a movie that focuses on uh, the ordeal of of women in um, in in a war situation. You know, it's it's you know apart from any involvements with men or th- that that they're just you know really fighting for their lives in a sense. Um, and that I thought was somewhat unique too. Uh, the the atmosphere within the hospital where they work is is also you know spot on. And there's a powerful scene with one of the um, paralyzed soldiers from the war who who ends up in a hospice with his wife uh, there to you know speed things along uh, with the doctor who's in charge who doesn't want to do this and so forth. I mean there are a lot of powerful scenes. It does I think. End up being a little bit monotone in terms of the power of the you know that that the subject is so powerful that a little a little lightness wouldn't have destroyed what was going on in this film. It would have increased, I think, the idea that there is some glimmer somewhere of something other than this you know relentlessly bleakness. Well, I think uh, even like Mrs. Miniver is a great example yeah, of yeah. something you're showing a woman dealing with. You know, World War Two and the effects from her perspective, yeah. but there are light moments in what's a heavy film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are no light moments in this movie, um, which is not necessarily a criticism against it, except that I do think that if there had been something other than relentless, relentless bleakness throughout, it might have, you know, pointed up just how bleak things were. 
you know, it's like you don't make a comedy by having every scene be a laugh riot. You know, it becomes exhausting. Beanball, the Russian film from writer-director Kantemir Balagov. It stars Victoria Miro Shnink, uh, excuse me, Miro Shnichenko and Veselisa Perelignia. Uh, uh, it's unrated. You can see it at the New Art Theater in West L.A. We reviewed Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the French drama, back when it had its one-week qualifying run before the end of 2019. Now it's getting a much wider release in a number of art house theaters here in the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, the film is written and directed by Céline Seama. Uh, Amy, what do you think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Yeah, I mean, this is a very regal romance, and and. I don't worship it as much as other people do, but I like it quite a, quite a bunch. I mean, the setup here is that we're in France in the mid-1700s on a very rural island with cliffs everywhere. And a young woman who is a painter working on her own, who learned the trade from her dad, has been commissioned to paint the wedding portrait of kind of the young bride-to-be of the house, a woman named uh, Heloise, by her mother. And her mother is Valeria Golino, who it's nice to see on screen. Yeah, again. She was in all the 80s yeah. comedies, like Hot Shots, Hot yeah, Shots. She's yeah. become a director. She's uh, become a director yeah. as well? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And so, you know, her mother wants to marry off her daughter to a man in Milan. And to do so, she has to show the man a portrait of her daughter. And so, this painter has been showed up to try to secretly paint a portrait because the girl doesn't want her portrait painted. So it's a lot of them walking on the cliff, the girl studying her face, going home at night, trying to paint the portrait. And then over the course of the movie, as the two girls sort of become allies in this situation, painting it over and over again. So it's it's a lovely romance that's happening on one track and also kind of an interesting look at how an art piece can come together. Like when the portrait is right, you as the audience know that it's right. And it's really lovely to see something get perfected like that. Um, I think this film's fine. I think it's nice. I think it's very handsome. Uh, Peter? Yeah. This is Portrait of a Lady's <laughs> on Fire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thought I'd throw that in. Yes, yeah, for Alicia Keys. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think this film has much fire, frankly. I mean, I think it's a very chilly experience. It's beautifully set up. It's, you know, the production values are tip-top. Performances are fine. But I just found, you know, it, it was more dry ice than fire. Not enough fire for you. Yeah, no, it just... Uh, and a portrait of a lady on dry ice doesn't quite have yeah, the no, same Yeah, no, no. I mean, I spoke about this cool. when it... <laughs> it does. I spoke about this on the show when it, when, you know, when it opened yeah. in limited release. So I won't, I won't uh, you know, drub it again. But I, I, I do think it's being overrated, you know, because it's somewhat unique in the way that it... it, it presents its story, but I also think it's it's as cold as a meat locker. Portrait of a Lady on Fires Rated R. It's in selected theaters uh, much wider than its one-week qualifying run at the end of the year. Uh, also out this week, the uh, uh, New Zealand horror comedy Come to Daddy, starring Elijah Wood and Stephen McAddy. Ant Timpson directed Toby Harvard, the screenwriter Amy. This movie is wild, and I had a ton of fun when it played out here um, at Beyond Fest in October. So what's going on is you have Elijah Wood, who has done such a terrific job of really committing his career and his name brand and his finances to making these very strange horror films, including one called The Greasy Strangler a few years ago. And this is done by a lot of the same team. It has much less male nudity, if people remember The Greasy Strangler at all, where a man is always in a car wash, fully naked, getting beaten down. Um 
this. Come to daddy. It's very fun <laughs> in a different way. Um, Good segue. Fun in a different way. Yeah. Okay. I'll be out at the car wash if anybody needs me. Oh, 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 I want to make Charles watch this Greasy Strangler. Uh, what you have here is you have Elijah Wood playing a man who is like a music producer who shows up in these very avant-garde clothes to a rural beach house on, on the seashore where his father has summoned him. And he hasn't seen his father since he was a little kid. They have a really estranged relationship. And when you meet the man who's there in the house, you can understand why. It's a lot of evil back and forth, bullying, bad fits. Um, the dad is very macho, tries to get him to start drinking again, even though the Elijah Wood's character has become straight edge. That and is then evil. It is. And then it gets incredibly, incredibly, incredibly violent and very fun and very strange. It, it takes a lot of twists that I don't really want to spoil here, but I will say it is a good audience movie. And there's also a great Elton John joke in the middle of it. Come to Daddy's oh, Rated R. And uh, you can see it at the Alamo Draft House downtown Los Angeles. It opened last week, but is still screening at the Alamo. Coming up, we have many more films. We'll hear Charles, Amy, and Peter talk about them. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle with critics Peter Rayner, uh, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. Peter Rayner. <laughs> Rayner. There you go. It's only been 28 years, once, Larry. I was going to say, once you're with us 30 years, I'll really have okay. it down, Peter, I promise. <laughs> All right. No, and, and how okay, many years... Okay, Barry, thank you. How many, how many years did I read you before you even yeah, came on right, the program? Well. I'm sorry. So, so Quentin Tarantino was talking yeah, to me right. about you, so that's where that came from. Uh, we continue with reviews. Ride Your Wave, the Japanese anime film that's directed by Masaki Yuasa, a surfer and firefighter meet and fall in love. Charles? Um, well, Yuasa is one of that generation of young directors who are really pushing anime in new directions. And he got a lot of attention for um, The Night is Short, uh, Walk On Girl, and Lou Over the Wall that were very quirky, very unusual, uh, with a very distinct kind of minimal graphic style. Here he's actually bringing some more emotional depth, and the film is very warm, very charming, and another example of how the Japanese are creating much more interesting animated heroines than we are. Uh, in this case, Hinako is a champion surfer who moves to a small town uh, to be by the beach and to go to school, and she's rescued from a fire by this dashing first rescuer, Minato. And... He's someone he's she sees him as a very noble character because he's devoted himself to helping others. But he's also very reassuring because Hinako is a brilliant athlete, but something of a klutz in real life. And he believes he tells her that you will one day handle your life with the same panache and grace that you handle the waves. And after he's killed, she believes in an accident, she believes that she can summon him up by singing their favorite song to any watery surface. And so he's with her when she's faced with another crisis where she has to save her own life and the life of Minato's sister. And from this, she sort of realizes, I have to let go of the past. I have to become the person whom I can be. And she be develops into this mature, capable woman who becomes a lifeguard to continue the tradition of serving others. And it's a really interesting, uh, very pretty film. It's something of a departure for Yuasa, 
but I think it's a real uptick in his storytelling. It was written by the same woman who wrote uh, Oko's Inn, which we also liked uh, last year. Uh, Very worthwhile film seeing. And again, why can't we do heroines that are this compelling and this layered? It's unrated. What age range would it uh, be Um, appropriate for? I would say, you know, tweens, teens, and, and older. There's nothing scandalous in it or the violence isn't really scary uh it's just that this is about a loving relationship and you know so it's probably going to bore small children but uh, i would think by like junior high people would be taken with it ride your wave japanese animated film it's at lemley's glendale theater starting next wednesday the 19th the last thing he wanted, a drama starring Anne Hathaway, Willem Dafoe, Ben Affleck, and Rosie Perez. Dee Rees is the director and co-screenwriter with Marco Villalobos. Peter? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, based on a Joan Didion novel from 1996. Uh, it's set in the early days of uh, the Iran-Contra mess. Uh, Anne Hathaway is a reporter for a newspaper that is called the Atlantic Post, but we know it to be the Washington Post. Uh, she's taken off a um, uh, a hot story about an El Salvador massacre uh, under dubious uh, circumstances and uh, is instead assigned to cover the Reagan 84 re-election. She ends up in Florida and Costa Rica and finally Antigua uh, uh, with all sorts of nefarious uh, things going on. Ben Affleck is a kind of opaque uh, U.S. Uh, government official. Uh, it, it's... It's kind of a mess. I mean, it does have some atmosphere going for it and, uh, you know, some nice uh, local color, particularly in the Antigua scenes. Toby Jones is uh, uh, a uh, hotelier who looks uh, looks and sounds and acts a bit like Truman Capote, which is not surprising since he played Truman Capote in an earlier movie. Um, but I just found the, the whole narrative to be rather confusing, and even if you can parse it out, it doesn't really add up to a whole lot. I, I just kept thinking of better films like this, Year of Living Dangerously, of course, that had a romance that this film doesn't have. But but I think if you're going to do this type of film, uh, you know, I think it needs to be grounded in more than just atmosphere. The film is The Last Thing He Wanted, starring Anne Hathaway and Willem Dafoe D. Rees, the director and co-screenwriter. You can see it this week at the Landmark in West L.A., and it begins streaming on Netflix next Friday, the 21st. The Last Thing He Wanted is rated R. The romantic drama To All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You, stars Lana Condor. The film is directed by Michael Fomonari. Uh, Amy, what do you think of uh, this romantic movie? We have a lot of them for this Valentine's weekend. <laughs> we do, we do. I mean, this is the one for the youth. This is a sequel to a film that came out a summer and a half ago that made a tiny minor heartthrob out of Noah Centennial, who has now been in pretty much every Netflix movie with young teen cat girls ever since. And the set appears you have a young girl named Lara Jean. She worships 80s John Hughes movies, and then she winds up living in one of a sort's when um, her younger sister sends out all of these letters to boys she used to have crushes on who then think she had just sent the letters and start pursuing her and blah, 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 blah. Um, This movie does kind of what John Hughes would have wanted in the first one where Lara Jean, the kind of wallflower shy girl, winds up with the big popular jock in school. Suddenly, they're just like in love and they kiss on the lacrosse field and it ends. And so now here they're doing, because it's a trilogy, they're doing the follow-up. Like, do, does this couple actually belong together? Are they a better fit? What about one of the other guys she sent a letter to who shows up who is mature beyond belief and speaks like he's been into through 40 years of therapy by the time they start <laughs> hanging out? 
I mean, I find this film franchise pretty ridiculous. Like, none of the kids in here at all talk like kids. They're all very, very serious. And it's so steeped in nostalgia that you get a little, you feel sad sometimes for the for the girls because it's hard for them to really break out and be their own person. I mean, the movie ends with the exact, the movie starts with the exact same opening of Elizabeth Shue in Adventures in Babysitting where Lara Jean is singing and then he kissed me in her own bedroom to herself in the mirror. But I will say one thing to this movie's credit is there is a really ridiculous sequence where Lara Jean begins volunteering at this retirement home, which is probably, I mean, if we're talking about nostalgia for something we never got to live through, this retirement home is the coolest place I've ever seen on earth. It's like a mansion. There's fortune tellers. They have these giant balls. Um, They have prune daiquiris. I mean, they have prune daiquiris and they have this kind of drawn dog who's like a Catherine Hepburn swanning around in like what looks like several mansion rooms. Drunk and regular. (laughs) It's one thing to be. Sorry, Amy. It's it's one thing to be a regular at a bar. You open open a door and you walk in. I wish we had some right now, guys. Prune daiquiris for everybody. I thought um, Love Simon a year or two ago was the closest thing we'd seen in a long time to a John Hughes. Uh, movie. He's yeah. trying to restore a semblance of order to the discussion. Yeah, and this tries to, I mean, in the first film, there's a nice moment where Lara Jean, who's half Korean, makes the note that Long Duck Dong is extremely racist, and yet she loves the film anyway. So it is trying to update a bit, but I don't know, past the print. Yeah, and it was, yeah, and that, and that reference, that was outdated at the time that film came out, too. Yes. To all the boys, P.S. I Still Love You, uh, directed by Michael Fuminari. It stars Lana Condor and Noah Centineo. It's streaming on Netflix and is unrated. The Japanese animated film Violet Evergarden, Eternity and Auto Memory Doll. What a great title, Charles. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, this is the has the dis- unhappy distinction of being the first film from Kyoto Animation Studios since the arson, and the director insisted that all 35 victims be listed in the credits saying that, you know, we're all artists together. And I'm sorry I didn't like it better. It is a feature based on a popular uh, girl series. The Auto Memory Doll, who is um, Violet Evergarden, is sort of a cyborg-type creature who's there to teach uh, a girl who turns out to be a princess to prepare for her debut and then she goes back to work and the adopted sister of that woman decides she wants to become a postman and enough tears flow to fill a koi pond and I just couldn't get very much out of it I, I because I like so many of the Kyoto Animations films I was just disappointed by this. The film is Violet Evergarden, Eternity and Auto Memory Doll. It's unrated in selected theaters starting next week. Well, here's some more reviews from our critics, and we'll also remember a former Film Week critic who was with us a number of years, FX Feeney, who went way back to the old Z channel here in Los Angeles. He did the guide for it. I don't know how many films he wrote the descriptions of, but it was very formative for me as a movie lover. We'll be back in one minute. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle with Amy Nicholson, Peter Rayner, and Charles Solomon. Our next film, uh, And Then We Danced. The movie's written and directed by Levin Akin. Peter? This is an interesting movie. It's set in uh, modern Georgia, Russian Georgia. Um, 
and uh, there's a the dancer Mirab is, is is training to dance in the uh, the, the National Georgia Ensemble. Uh, but apparently, in this very conservative, very uh, you know traditional community, um, the men are only supposed to dance in a very hyper masculine way. Uh, and if you deviate at all from that, uh, you get you know chewed out by the uh, choreographer, dancer, uh, instructor who uh, could fit right into the movie Whiplash if they remade it. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so enter Irakli, who's another dancer, much more talented than Mirab, uh, and two of them eventually become amorous, uh, which creates all kinds of issues in this very repressed society. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, it's it, the local atmosphere, the local color, uh, the, the scenes within the dance uh, community, I think, are all very well played out. And um, it's, it, it is sort of fascinating to see just how entrenched uh, this old traditional way is in terms of, you know, sexual roles uh, in this society. The director apparently made this movie. He's, he grew up in Sweden, but he's from Georgia. Uh, he, he decided he wanted to make this movie when he saw a um, uh, LGBT uh, demonstrators in Georgia being uh, attacked by far-right protesters, and he felt this is not the society I want to, you know, live in, so he made this movie as a sort of protest. And then we danced. It's at uh, Select Lemley Theaters and Unrated. Uh, also, Jose, a uh, Guatemalan drama, uh, which deals with gay issues as well, Peter? Uh, yeah, this is a 19-year-old uh, young man named Jose who lives in, in Guatemala City in a very poor neighborhood. Uh, his mother, uh, you know, is... Uh, makes sandwiches and he runs out and, and, and tries to get people to come into this hot dog stand. It's, it's not a great life. Uh, he has a lot of um, hook, hookups uh, with a dating app and he meets this one guy and they uh, become very close. But again, it's a very repressive society that this film takes place in. And um, it, 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 it's a, an evocative movie. Uh, it's, it's explicit in many ways. Um, the big problem I had is that the, the Jose himself as a character is a bit of a blank. And so, you know, you don't really get enough of a sense of, of what's going on with him except for what you're seeing. Lee Chang is the director and co-screenwriter. The film Jose is unrated. It opened last week at Lemley's Royal West L.A. And, Amy, you got a couple thoughts on The Lodge starring Riley Keough, Richard Armitage, and Alicia Silverstone. Yeah, this is one of those classy new horror films that I find incredibly boring. Um, <laughs> the, the, the story here is that... Um, Riley Keough is a new stepmom. She's in a winter cabin with her, um, with these two children. The man disappears, and you're basically just staring at her face for a really long time as there's a lot of white snow, creepy things happen. You know, her character has a kind of interesting backstory. She's this one survivor of an evangel evangelical death cult, but really they're not doing much with the premise. It's just boring, you senseless. It's a very tedious mood piece. Uh, the Lodge, the film Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz are the uh, co-directors of the R-rated film, which opened last week in selected theaters. want to take an opportunity to remember longtime Film Week critic FX Feeney who was with us for many years going back to the 1990s. He died earlier this week at the age of 66. Uh, his work appeared in many publications, People Magazine, Variety, and Vanity Fair. But 
I just, I remember how influential he was for me. Back to the uh, first of the pay movie channels in Los Angeles, the Z Channel, uh, back which started in the 1970s. One of the first of the kind combining art house films, foreign films um, with, um, with American movies that were released to pay television as well. And FX wrote not just reviews, but full descriptions of the backstories of films, why something maybe didn't get seen by more people in its release. It was incredibly informative to me. I learned a great deal about movies from FX, and I was so happy when he joined our Film Week team and was with us for, for so many years. I want to go back to 2003... Here's a, a review uh, of, uh, of FX as he explains why he thinks the sequels to the original Matrix paled in comparison. It had the character of like a, a kind of cybernetic 2001. I think that's why so many people are so devoted to the sequels, why, why the sequels are anticipated. I think the problem is, and this was true of Matrix 2 as well, is that they don't quite come up to the first. There's no big reveal that uh, no no new reality that that um, can deepen the uh, intensity of the first discovery, and so here in number three, as in number two, I find myself having the reaction I had when I was kind of dozing in number one, which is oh, there's a lot of noise. There is some intelligent work going on. The the character that Keanu Reeves plays, Neo, the um, the anticipated Messiah who's going to deliver everybody from from the, the domination of the machines, he and his relationship with Carrie Ann Moss, there are some, some nice developments and, and there's a, an intelligent logic to his destiny as it unfolds. FX Feeney from a 2003 November review. Peter, your memories of FX. Yeah, I, you know, he was a terrific critic and, and film historian. Uh, he had a, you know, incredible range of knowledge, not only of movies, but of, of many different aspects of culture, which he brought into his his writing and his discussions. Um, I remember uh, one of my favorite movies is Night of the Hunter, and, and FX wrote a piece for the uh, the, the uh, Writers Guild magazine about having read the original draft that had been uncovered of Agee's script for Night of the Hunter, and there's always been a controversy about, you know, just how much of the credit, he's sole credit he deserves. And so FX had read the entire script and had written about it, and I was like, wow! You know, I remember talking to him about that, and, and it was just so exciting, and you know, he, I mean, first things first, he was just a wonderful guy. He was I a mean, wonderful man. He was yeah, a, a tremendously gentle. sweet, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't recall a time when I would see him in person where he didn't extend his hand for a handshake, you know, I mean, and it was a real gesture. Um, he was, you know, just, and, and, and you would think it's sort of a liability if you're a critic to, to always look for the, the positive in everything, you know, but as we heard in that Matrix clip, he could be, you know, he could be very... Uh, uh, intelligent and straightforward about stuff that he didn't like too, and 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 explain the reasons why. But he was, you know, overall just you know one of the nicest guys I've I've ever met in this business. Amy, yeah, yeah he was um, a lion still at the LA Weekly when I arrived as an intern from Oklahoma, and I can't think of a person who made me feel more welcome. You know, he kind is the word that I think comes up all the time with him, which you would think is kind of a nice, sweet little word. But with him, it really is this depth of kindness that channeled into his reviews. He was kind even as he pulled apart why they didn't work. Yeah. He came from such a, a human point. And I, my favorite time was always running into him at the House of Pies. He was a regular there when he was still living in Los Feliz. And it always made my day. I love that you yeah. you bring up about his personal, because that warmth he had as a person gave a real personality to his writing. Charles? Yeah, I mean, I can just second what Amy and, and Peter have said, that he was always 
gentle and interested and interesting. And uh, he could also be very funny. I remember a lot of stories. He had gone back to Ireland to try and look up his father's family there. Yeah, he said he was a distant relative of John Ford. Yeah, and had very (laughs) funny stories about what happened while he was trying to do that research. But uh, unpretentious and knowledgeable and, as I said, I think a very gentle man in many ways. And and he wrote several screenplays as well. Uh, You know, Big Brass Spring, he wrote a book on Orson Welles. And apparently there's a documentary that he... Uh, was making uh, that's almost completed on the um, producer-director James B. Harris, who was uh, Stanley Kubrick's partner for many years. All right. For our critics, I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you so much for joining us for another Film Week. We'll back with you Friday at 11 and Saturday at noon.